Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs. We have our small business owners. We have our local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have the folks who help others create their businesses. And we have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers. If you are one or more of the above, and many of you, like me, are all of the above, take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we serve you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on your favorite syndication network, such as iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. You'll get fresh content every week, as well as immediate access to over 270 topics covering a breadth and depth of issues relevant to business creators today. So today, today here, we are going to have an interesting conversation about something called the clean cell. And we are going to allow this topic to percolate for a moment, and our guest is going to explain what that means. So let me just tell you a little bit about who we have for you today. His name is Dominic Capasilli, and he is the CEO of the Clean Cell Consulting Firm, which has helped hundreds of entrepreneurs to not only tell a better sales story, but also build many of their sales efforts from the ground up. And he has a lot of experience. He has a great story he's about to tell you. And one thing that I like about Dom is in his work, he combines the power of a trained storyteller with the real-world experience of an elite salesperson. In fact, he became an elite salesperson because he was a trained storyteller. So we are going to speak a little bit about the change that came about and what led to the development of the clean cell and the launch of the clean cell. But first, let's welcome Dominic in. Come on in. The weather's fine. I'm here. I'm warm. It's wonderful. I can see the sun. How are you? All right. I love it. I love it. So here's what we like to do here on Business Creators Radio Show. You have a great ton of information you're going to share with us today. I know there's a number of things we're going to go over over the course of the next 50-some minutes. But what we like to do here, before we dive in, is I know some of our listeners may have by this time opened a separate browser tab, and they're looking you up, and they're looking up the clean seller, excuse me, the clean cell, sorry, <laughs> and they are looking to discover more about you. So what I'd like to do is just see if you can tell us a little bit about your own story and your own trajectory and what's brought you to where you are today serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, sure. So I can give you a little bit on, on my background. So I, I didn't come into business or entrepreneurship uh, in a traditional manner, meaning like, you know, I didn't get an MBA from Stanford uh, or Harvard or something like that. I actually, you know, I started out as a storyteller, you know, and I still am a storyteller today, but my training was in journalism. So I was a newspaper journalist uh, starting out of school, and then I was a sports reporter, and then I was a human interest reporter. And then I moved to creative writing and, and was an author and uh, actually went to school for uh, screenwriting. So my, my training is really based upon how to demystify and deconstruct what makes a great story. And all those are different yeah. mediums, but the, the central piece of those 
is you have to you have to be able to know how to tell a good story. And you know, most people who are good storytell who are good storytellers don't really know why they are. They just are. They just are. I didn't have that luxury, especially when you're doing that for a living. You really need to to understand what that what that looks like. Uh, so that that was kind of the backdrop to my to my sale or to my sales and to my entrepreneurship career. Um, and I really I did that for really the first ten years of my career. And then you know I realized I kind of had the itch to start my own business. Um, and I had I had the itch to to have more of a business mind. An entrepreneurship mind, I always kind of had that hustle, and it was a little bit different than than the writer's life, which is a bit more solitary than that. Right. Uh, so, you know, I was in I was in Los Angeles working for some terrible human being uh, who was a uh, who was an agent or a, a writer's agent, and I knew okay, I'm going to have to work for ten years for a bunch of people who are not great not great people uh, just to have a chance to then live in a city. I'm from New York. Uh, and, you know, Los Angeles was not the city that I wanted to live in because it's just that's so different culturally from where I'm from. And I said, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to have to work for 10 years just to have a chance. And then I'm going to have to live in a city that I don't really want to live in. So I, so I needed a new start. You know, that was when I was around 20, 27 or 28. Uh, and I decided uh, I'd been told, I, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'd always, I'd always been told I would be good at sales. I didn't really know why, you know, it kind of turned off by the, I was turned off by the idea of sales, felt very pushy to me, uh, and not something that I was into. Um, but a friend of mine had a healthcare startup or a healthcare uh, medical device company, um, and he asked me to help him work on a sales story a little bit. And I said, okay, this might be something I'm, you know, this could be fun. So I helped him rewrite his sales story and kind of sales pitch, just using some of the premises that I had done before, and it worked really well. And then he, you know, and he said, this is great. Like, why don't you come, you're, you're looking for a new start. Why don't I come back to New York? New York? Why don't you come uh, work for me and see if we can, see if we can build this thing. So I went back and I said, Oh, you know, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to have to start over. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't really, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any kind of formalized sales training, but the weird thing is it was what I actually did all of my storytelling background ended up being the best possible preparation I could have had for a sales career. And that's because sales and entrepreneurship really you know, on, a, on a wider lens is all about telling a good story. So I worked with uh, this healthcare company and we tripled their sales, tripled their sales in a year, doubled their sales in six months. In six months. And, uh, you know, I was kind of off to the races at that point. I felt, I kind of fell in love with the, really the, the like, just the process of uh, going to market with a product and sell and selling it. So I, I started there and then I went to uh, ZocDoc, which is a, which is a uh, unicorn startup. And that's kind of where, where I really cut my teeth is real boiler room sale sales environment where, you know, you you have a real, you have these monthly quotas, at least you did at the time and everything was, was pretty crazy. Uh, so it's really, uh, you know, you had to be good and you had to be innovative in order to, to stay with the company. And that's where I really learned yeah. a lot of what I picked up about how to actually become a salesperson outside of the storytelling piece that I was good at. Um, right. And, you know, I, I knew from there that I wanted to start my own business. So I was, I was doing healthcare sales uh, to, to hospitals when I was at ZocDoc and the, 
I was approached by a company that was an established company who had traditionally sold to pharma but wanted to sell to healthcare. Uh, and or I wanted to sell to hospitals and health systems, which is what I had an experience in. So it was really unique because I was basically I basically had my own funded startup that I got to build from the ground up at an and let an established company fund that side. So I was able to build a product, able to build a healthcare technology product there from the ground up and go out, put together an entire go-to market strategy for it, and then go sell it. And I was able to do that successfully. And you know, one of the things that I that I learned or started to started to understand as I worked with the entrepreneurship and startup community, I had this weird fantasy in my head that, you know, if somebody was an entrepreneur, they had this, they must have this amazing humming sales process and yeah. sales messaging uh, that was, you know, that is, um, that it's perfect. And there's nothing that I can possibly do to, to help, you know, and what I realized after talking more and more to founders is they don't most, most, most founders, are succeeding in spite of their sales uh, strategy, not because of it. You know, they're succeeding because they have a great product or because they're charismatic, but they're not really helping themselves foundationally with good sales messaging and a good overall sales process and strategy. Uh, so I knew there was a gap in the market there, and more, more and more companies are getting funded, and it's easier to start a business nowadays, and most people who start a business are subject matter or technical experts, uh, and they're their technical expertise is not sales, right? Much in the way it took them 15 years to become a great developer, it took me it took me 10 to 15 years to become a good a great salesperson. So to think, the only difference is I'm not asked to be an engineer in my job, uh, right. but a founder is asked to be a salesperson. So I knew there was a huge gap in the market, and there was a gap where a lot of companies that had the chance to succeed weren't, and it wasn't because they had a bad idea or a bad product because they didn't know how to scale up their sales operation or create a, a sales engine that actually that keeps running for them. So wow. that's when I that's when I decided, you know, I worked with a couple of companies and I just was having a couple hour meetings just like as a favor to some uh, CEO friends of mine. And I started to see some huge changes in them just from a few hour meetings, you know, like closing, able to close uh, just some low hanging fruit stuff where they were able to close contracts, a couple hundred thousand dollar contracts. And I said, wow, there might be something here. Uh, and, you know, the clean cell was born out of that, and that was about three years ago. Um, so I started the company, and I've been working with founders and startup teams ever since and really helping them to transition from early founder-led sales to a proven and scalable uh, sales effort uh, throughout their company, throughout their company. So that's kind of the backstory of how I got to where I am today. I was feeling like it was a little bit long-winded, but uh, <laughs> hopefully you got the hopefully you got the brass tacks. Well, you laid a lot of groundwork, and I appreciate you taking the time to go through that in detail because it links to several of the things we're going to share today. And one of the things that I appreciate is when you mentioned the mistakes that companies make sometimes when they're scaling up or when they scale up improperly. I know one of the things that you and I were chatting about in the green room has to do with really the very top of your organizational structure when it comes to sales. And one of the things that you raised, the point you raised that I found was very interesting, is that some companies will hire a VP of sales, but they'll do it too early. So why is this, and what should they do instead? Yeah, I mean, 
I call it, it's a fantasy. There's this, this is, this is the CEO's fantasy, right? I had this fantasy as a CEO. I don't want to be, I don't want to do sales. That's not what I'm here for. I started my own company. I don't want to be the person out there doing sales. I'm going to, I'm going to find somebody who's really good at this and then I'm going to hire them and I'm just going to meet with them weekly and I'm going to watch the numbers go up and up and up. And it does not work that way. That is, so I call, I like to call that in-house outsourcing. And it doesn't work because as the founder, especially in the early days, when I say early days, I mean the first three to five years of your company sometimes, uh, depending on how, how fast you grow, uh, what you're, what happens is the, the product is changing so much and you're the tech, you're the subject matter expert. Your passion is there. Like you have to be the one out there selling, uh, and you have to be the one who's talking to customers because a couple of reasons. One, your product's fluid. It should be. My product when right. I started my my product when I started my business three years ago is entirely different than you know, it's the same principles, but the the output and the product market fit and my target and all of that are different because I had to listen to the market. Almost no one who starts a business uh has this idea of what they're going to start and then it it doesn't change at all and it's not fluid, it's just a success right from the get go. Where you where you actually do the work where the where you actually uh kind of earn your keep as a CEO is listening to the market and making those adjustments so you can give it what it needs. And you can't do that if you're not the one out there talking to customers, especially in the early days. Until you have 20, 30, 20 or 30 clients or have got 20 or 30 sales minimum, I mean, I'm talking like enterprise or services contracts at this point. Yeah. Like you're, you need to be the one who's out there actually selling this. The only time that you bring in other people is when you say, okay, I have this down, but I don't have the time to do this anymore. And I want, and, but I, but the sales process that I've gone through is proven. I have, I've, I've said, okay, here's, I know how to go out and close business myself. Um, now I just need someone to repeat that process that I've already, that I've already designed. Hiring salespeople to, to solve for the fact that you don't know how to sell your product is a big mistake. Um, because they're not going to be as passionate as you are. Oftentimes, especially if you make a senior hire, a senior hire is the worst hire you can make because generally what happens is you get a VP of sales, right? And usually what you'll hire, what someone will hire is someone who has like this kind of this fancy looking resume and they got 20 years of industry experience and they talk about the Rolodex and how impressive that is and how many deals, how many people they're going to bring in. And it never happens and because they start trying to, to plug their square hole, their square peg into a round hole. I might have done that the other way around. But uh, they start they start trying to plug in their network into your product, whether it's a fit or not, because that's really all they know how to do. And also, a couple other factors there, too. Is there some, if you can, as a startup or a new business, if you can hire a VP of sales, if you hire a VP of sales, usually if that person, what you get a lot of time there is kind of the middle management problem. It's like that person's been around a lot, but they they haven't really started their own thing. Like if they were really, if they could build a business from the ground up, they might have, they probably would have done it already. So you get a lot of kind of, kind of middle tier talent. That's not going, you know, that if they're willing to take a job with you without completely stripping you of equity of your company, um, you know, they're probably not the best that's out there. And the other factor is a lot of times these people, these people in these different industries, they've worked at GE, right? Or one of yeah. these big companies and these big and they're, they're these big salespeople and with the and a 
they did that like for the last 15 to 20 years and the ground has completely shifted underneath them and B, the skill set that you need to build a business from the ground up is completely different than the skill set that you need to manage 19 key accounts for General Electric. So a lot of times the people who are qualified to be VPs of sales don't actually have the skill sets needed to build a business from the ground up. Is that enough reasons? Have I, have I ripped through? That's, that's have pretty I ripped good. Through that's, sales? <laughs> that's pretty good. And, you know, especially when companies are smaller, they're in startup or they're in growth mode, uh, sometimes we see, you know, let's get the executive structure all lined up before we do anything. And to me, that has never made sense. I kind of agree with you. So you hire a VP of sales right away, but does this person have the passion and connection to the product or the service? Do they have a buy-in to this? I mean, there are a lot of questions you need to ask. It's like I also see companies, especially virtual companies, that look to scale by building virtual teams. And they wonder why it seems like they need to plead with their virtual team people to get what they're asking for and why they get a level of pushback on things sometimes that is like, wait a minute, I'm paying you. Why are you questioning me? Like you, you think that, you know, if, you know, if this is a company, you wouldn't get away with it. And the fact is, if they were employees, it would be a different story. But when you have contractors, uh, virtual team members, and people who are not actually your employees, these are usually entrepreneurs themselves, and their first loyalty will ultimately be to their own business as it should be, which is why the mm -hmm. dynamic is different. There is a way to work around that d dynamic, and that's actually part of the work that I do, is helping people who work with virtual teams understand who these virtual assistants and virtual people are and why these seem so, and I mean air quotes, I'm saying this, quirky and, and sometimes even irascible. And it's not that they're bad people. They're actually very good people. In fact, it's that passion and their connection to their own brilliance and passion that's so, so valuable for your organization when you contract with them. But because they don't have the same linkage to your company that you do because you own it, that's sort of like hiring a VP of sales when you're too early in the company, when it's really you as the creator and the yeah. developer of the story that should be out there doing the sales. So it's funny how these same trends repeat regardless of whatever area of business we're discussing. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue, so I think the issue sometimes with these lone wolves that we're talking about, which is kind of what happens, is that um, is that they don't, if you do want them to do something very, like, this is the problem, you can't, people are, like, outsourcing creative things, right? If you're going right. to outsource something, it needs to be highly structured. Uh, on, it needs to be, you need to do this, you need to send this many emails on this day, and here's how, here's what the follow-up looks like. It needs to be research these leads, uh, come back to me, find the email addresses for all of them, or whatever, you know, like, whatever, that's kind of the stuff that I use people when I'm outsourcing for. But when you start outsourcing, uh, unless you're, like, paying an agency or, like, a fractional a fractional person to, to you know, who has a real expertise and kind of manage that entire area of your business, um, right. you know, you really need to give a lot of structure to people that you're outsourcing. Don't outsource um, just because you don't feel confident doing something. That's not a, that's not a, uh, that's not a way to be successful. Yeah. So let's get into startups a little bit. Uh, 
how should a startup think about lead generation strategically, especially when there are limited resources? And let me give you an example. We have startups who are frequently approached and say, you should do Facebook ads, which is money. You should do hire somebody to make calls for you. That's money. Uh, maybe they don't have that type of money to lay out. Maybe they don't want to max out their credit cards as soon. Maybe they don't know who to hire, who to contract with, because they don't even know what questions to ask, and they don't know what they don't know. So from your perspective and your expertise with this, Dominic, how should a startup think about lead generation with these types of things in mind, the limited resources that are frequently an issue when it comes to startups? Yeah, I mean, it's super common, which is, A, there's a lot, there's a lot of people selling snake oil out there, but also there's a right. lot of people who are selling very helpful things that might be wrong for your business. So when I when I try to when I speak with startup founders, the first thing I'm trying to figure out is how big is your target market, right? So if your target market right. is three is three hundred is only Fortune 500 companies, why the hell are you using Facebook ads? You know, right. you know exactly who the 500 people that you need to go out and speak to are. So the, it's like it's a matter of your your lead gen. There's a lot of lead generation strategies out there, but the one that you're the ones that you focus on need to be in relation to the size of your target customer. So if I'm trying to sell, if I'm selling a, you know, a $15 uh, golf training tool, right? There's a pretty large, there's a pretty large uh, target customer for that. And it's very, and it's a low gate, you know, and the, and the gate for that is very low. So I can't have individual sales conversations with everyone I speak to and I can't make individual and I can't do individual effort and outreach. So in that situation, wow, a Facebook ad makes a lot of sense because I can I can find that niche population very is easily for B2C. Right? So it's, right. it's the first side first is the size of the target market and then, you know, the also the uh how niche down and how easy it is to find those people publicly. So that's kind of the that's the first thing that I think about. The second thing I think about is the price of your item. Right. So my contract, right. my contract values are usually anywhere between 30 and 60,000. And it's like a three to six month. It's a three to six month, uh, um, uh, contract or length of contract. So these are big deals. You know, that's a lot of money to ask an entrepreneur to spend. So if I put up a LinkedIn ad and I ask them to go to the site and, and, you know, just on a pure, from a pure sales point of view without giving them any kind of, uh, content, like they're not going to, nobody's going to close $60,000 off of a link, off of a LinkedIn ad. You need to be much more targeted right. than that. You need to make sure you need to be reaching out to them. There needs to be a level of personal attention that's there. You need, and you're probably going to have to do much more of an outbound system rather than an inbound one. And if you're going to do an inbound one, it should be a brand awareness content marketing, um, content marketing play. So the, there, there's a, there's, when I think about um, now, that's that's with regard to the inbound versus outbound, right? So yeah. when I think when I think about outbound outbound strategy, when I say outbound, it means one to one contact um, and reaching reaching out. Or there are when I think about outbound strategy, it's really I, I think about like a war, and it's a really I forgive me for like this super morbid um, analogy that I'm about to use or metaphor that I'm about to use. Um, but lead generation is a bit like a war. So yeah. uh, marketing and inbound, in, in, marketing is really 
like economic sanctions, right? It takes a long time for economic sanctions to kick in. It's hard to get right. But once they start working, it's once they start working, you know, they're pretty effective and they're pretty low on the amount of effort that you have to do, right? You just turn them, you turn them on and you, once you've found kind of the mousetrap to get, to get people to your site and buy your, and kind of go through that buyer journey, um, you know, it is successful and it's pretty low maintenance. The problem is it's not, it's really, really difficult to get that done and it takes a lot of time. Then like mass outreach is where, you know, you're actually emailing out to people that you, to like a huge list that you bought. And that's kind of like a nuclear bomb. So that's like you're gonna, you're definitely gonna hit your target, but you're gonna you're gonna cause a lot of damage to your brand. Uh, you're gonna cause a lot of damage to your brand outside of that because you're gonna hit people who aren't in your target, and you're gonna be kind of it's gonna be kind of a spamming feel, right? So there's a lot of damage that can be done by this like this mass outreach piece. On the other on on the lower side, there's then one to one outreach. So this is this is like special forces. This is, I know there's 300 contracts out there, or I know there's 300 companies out there who can really benefit from what I do. So let's reach out. Let's make sure that we target five to six people at those companies and hit them with, hit them with all kinds of different, very targeted and very targeted messaging. It's super effective. It takes a lot of effort to do that. So it's a matter of like how you're, how you're actually using your resources. Um, so that's like, so when you think about as a, as a startup or as a, as a company, you always need to be thinking about, okay, what's the best, what's the best approach for me and how big is my target market? How niche are they? How easy are they to find? And then you can pick which one of those methods works best for you. Does that make sense? And, and they're not all mutually exclusive, by the way. It's just huh. a matter of knowing what your highest return is and you have limited resources. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, what we have is small businesses and startups are sometimes advised based on the hammer that whoever they're thinking of working with, whoever's approaching them, is holding. And when you're holding a hammer, the whole world's a nail. So, of course, that's going yeah, to be everybody, the everybody's answer. Everybody's perfect for Facebook ads if you're selling them. Everybody's well, yeah, perfect yeah. for Facebook ads if oh, that's yeah, what I Facebook. sell, yeah. Yeah, Facebook ads are for everybody. I mean, I can tell you personally, they're not for my business. Uh, if you ever see uh, a Facebook ad coming from my company, that means the world will have spun around about 25 times since you and I sat down and had this conversation. We tried it. It wasn't our, it wasn't our gig. It wasn't our niche. It just wasn't a place where we felt that we were getting the best results. Yeah. However, we've done other activities that have gotten us huge return on investment. So it makes dollars and cents to pursue those avenues. And when you have limited resources, you have to decide if this activity is really going to be good for getting you quality leads that will likely convert to paying customers or if you're doing something because everybody else is doing it. I remember back in my early days in the field of training and development, and this was right around the time that e-learning became a thing. I bet you have some people listening to this who uh, realize I just dated myself with that one. But when e-learning came out, there was this cartoon that used to show up in every presentation I watched about e-learning. And it depicted the head of the training department in the office with the VP of finance or something. And the training manager was proposing that the company start with e-learning and use e-learning as a way of training and developing their teams. 
and this VP or C-level person said, well, I don't really know what an e-learning is, but if you're saying our competition has one, then get us two of them. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're <laughs> that, not unfortunately, it's we see right? that thinking. Unfortunately, we see that thinking, which is, well, if the competition has one, let's get two of them. Yeah. What, I mean, what does that prove? And, and what if e-learning wasn't something that your company actually needed? I can think of a lot of business environments where uh, electronic technology would not serve them at all. I can also surprise you with areas where e-learning type activities would be extremely valuable. So it's just a matter of what serves your organization so, best. So back to your original, back to your original question, right? Which is how do, as I, if I'm a startup, what you know? How do I, how do I figure out what's noise and what what works for me? And what I see almost always when I work with companies, and this is why I don't really fit in. You know, I don't really fit into this, is because I'm helping them to understand who their target customer is. Most of them don't know well enough. They don't really know who they're targeting or they're targeting like way, or they're casting like way too wide of a net rather than figuring out, okay, you know, I don't want to boil the ocean here. What's the, what, who are the people, who are the target customers I have that are the best for me? What's my ideal target customer? And by that, I mean, who has the biggest needs and the deepest pockets? Right. That's it's really it's really that simple. And when I work with companies, one of the first things that we do is focus down on that ideal customer profile. So then we know then it then it becomes kind of obvious almost who we should target and how we should target them. The, the work what I find the the thing that messes people up isn't that they don't know that you know Facebook ads aren't right for a, a billion you know for for million dollar contracts. It's that they don't know who they're they don't know who they're targeting. And, and they're trying to target too many people because they don't want to shut themselves off to others. And the problem is that ends up allocating resources very poorly because you end up doing a very poor job at five different target customers rather than a really great one at one or two. Right. Certainly. So going going along here, uh, you know, we're at the point where we're thinking about startups and limited resources. So let's move along the continuum a little bit. And how do you know when you've arrived at that place? where it's time to start scaling up your sales operation. Yeah, it's what to, it's it's a little bit to what I spoke earlier. It's where it's where you have a repeatable process, you have a documented process and all you need all you need right now is other people to go execute that. That's when you start scaling. If you're like if you're in the midst of constantly changing your product or your offering or you're not sure if you have product market fit, uh, what you need is not scaling up. What you need is customer development and really understanding, understanding who your customer is and what are the re, what are the pain points they have and why are they buying from you and how you can best match those and then what your pricing is. Like you need to go back further and a lot of companies try to jump to the scaling part before they really really understand their customer and have proof of concept. And that's when you start scaling. You need to have that. You need to have proof of concept and then it's not like. Hey, I have proof of concept for this target customer. Therefore, I can go scale my entire company. No, you can scale that target customer, and you can start exploring some of these other target customers. But like, don't assume because just because you have proof of concept for, um, you know, a transactional three thousand dollars sale, that you have proof of concept when you're trying to sell, you know, a, a three hundred thousand dollars sale. It's co- it's going to be an entirely different sale, and you, you know, really an entirely different product. So. That's what I would say. Really focus on getting proof of concept for that target customer. Then you can scale out that sales 
operation. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's a good thing to think about. So, uh, what are we may have covered a few of them already, but what are some of the biggest issues and mistakes in sales you see business owners make? And uh, in addition to that, you know, tell us about some strategic things, and maybe let's transition if we can to some of the pitch. What are some of the mistakes of the pitch as well? Because we want to help yeah. our audience understand what not to do. Yeah, I mean, some of the strategic some of the strategic mistakes that I see are part of what we've talked about already, right? Which is scaling too quickly, not really knowing who your not really knowing who your target customer is. Another one that I see is nobody has scripts. You know, a lot of companies, a lot of companies just kind of wing it on their pitch, and you get five or you know, and and you get like. This happened at ZocDoc. We didn't have really a set. We didn't have really like a set script that we work people through, or even a structure. So what ended up happening is you had 75 different pitches that were happening on a daily basis, and none of them were learning from each other because it, because they didn't have this documented. So I would say document your process and constantly be refining and tweaking it. Don't just wing it. That's a big that's a big issue. I know it's work that people you know that founders might think. I don't have time to do that, but this is really a slow down to go fast scenario because you, if you don't, if you really want to get out of the sales, you know, it's one of the things that we help companies do. But if you want to get out of being the one who's doing day to day sales, you need to have a model for the people that you're bringing in so they have something, so they have some structure to, to help them. Uh, so that's a, that's a big strategic piece. Um, another one that I see that's just kind of a quick one is in B2B, if you're, if you're having a proposal, you know, if you're selling a, if you're selling a, uh, a pretty com- a complex sale or, you know, something where you actually need to get a contract and, and put together a scope of work for someone, stop sending the scope of work as a follow-up to your first meeting. That scope of work, you know, a proposal is not a sales tool. A proposal is a written, is a, is a written form of what you've already agreed to in, um, in practice. So, or, you know, in, in, uh, person. So it's actually just right. formalizing. It's not, it's not a sales tool. So I get a lot of companies and says, well, you know, we're sending out 80% of our proposals are not getting, are not getting, uh, accepted or, you know, we're, oh. we're falling off the face of the earth. And I'm like, if you're sending out, if 80% of your proposals are not being accepted, then you're sending out proposals way too early and way too indiscriminately before you really understood the needs of the customer and and showed them a very clear way in how you you can address those needs. So stop sending proposals way too early and stop using them as a sales tool. Your proposal should be getting approved 50% or more of the time if you're doing it right. I would say higher than 50% of the time. Uh, so that's that's kind of a, a big strategic one just in the sales process. Now, when it comes to the sales pitch, the – a bunch of things that people are doing wrong, but if I could, if I can narrow it down, narrow down what I, what I do mostly in the storytelling area, it's that I get people to stop talking about themselves and their product and start talking about the pros, their prospect and the problems that that prospect has. It's a huge, it's a, it, you know, it's, it's a huge paradigm shift for people. And it's really, it's kind of obvious once you start doing it, why, why it works, but everybody's incredible at talking about themselves and never spends any time talking about the prospect and, and their needs, which is actually what, which is actually how you get people to sell. Yeah. You know, I've heard various things about 
proposals. And I'm glad you're here because maybe you can give some insights for our audience. One of the things that I've been taught for years, and when I implemented this in my own business, I found that my own closing rate went way up, is you never send paperwork until they've said yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's an offshoot of what we what I mentioned earlier, right? Which is yeah, you if they're gonna object, I want to be there in person to understand why they're objecting. I don't want I don't want it to, I don't want them to say that oh, it doesn't really work for me because there might be an adjustment that I can make. Um, so I send I send a proposal 15 minutes before a meeting. Say so here just for your review, we'll go over this in detail on the call, or I just don't send it at all and I actually walk them through it on the call. So me as the salesperson can understand, okay, this is hitting for them, this isn't hitting for them, and really understand. Because a lot of times when you send a proposal, it might just be a misunderstanding that they don't quite get, and now you've lost that deal uh, and lost momentum at the very least on that deal because you weren't there to answer that in real time. Yeah, and what I've, and what I've also seen is that proposals are where, in many cases, uh, deals go to die, especially, as you said, if you send them too early. So I'm glad you're sharing that with us because it validates something that I believed for some time. Because I remember back in the day, you go back about 10 years ago, and I was sending proposals out all the time. And at one point, I went back and I calculated what percentage of those actually turned into business. And the number came out around... 65%, if I remember correctly, which means 35% of my effort was being misdirected. I'm not going to say wasted. I'm going to say misdirected because 35% of it was not turning into sales. Uh, these proposals were not getting signed. They were not getting returned. They were not getting discussed. It's like where the conversation went to die. I've also discovered over the years that in some cases the prospect will say, hey, can you write that up and send that over as a way of getting rid of you? Now, I want to ask you that's this. That's a huge – yeah, that's in so fact, true. In fact, one of our, in fact, one of our listeners brought this up to me uh, who heard you were going to be on the Business Creators Radio Show and asked if I could uh, sort of tap your brilliance on this one a little bit. And I've experienced this when I was have been on the line with somebody who's a prospect, and I could tell. I mean, the vibe just wasn't there. I knew they weren't feeling it, and maybe I wasn't even feeling it either. And I'm going to put it this way, and you can break this up any way you want to. And it got to a point in the conversation where they said, they said look, um, you know, is, there, is there any chance you could write that up and send that over to me, and then I'll get back to you? And I recognized that was their polite way of saying, I need to get the hell out of here. This isn't where I want to be. And I said, sure. And then I never sent it. And they never asked about it because it was it was understood. So I see this sometimes as a way of politely saying I'm not interested, but I also think that that's salvageable or that that's an indicator that we may need to do something differently to begin with. So I wanted to get your thoughts on all that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you I don't think you should not follow up with that person. I think you should have got I think you should have stopped them right on the phone. What was, what's okay. wrong with what's wrong with just saying, hey, listen, it sounds like you're not really that into this, uh, and like I I'm not trying, you know, if this doesn't work for you or our solution isn't right for you or this, you know, we're not touching on, you know, the needs that you have are not in line with the solution that we have, that's completely fine. I, but I just don't want to waste either of our times. You know, can you just, I'm maybe I'm guessing here, but like, is that is that what's happening? You'll be surprised right. what people will tell you. 
because people sometimes people are playing sometimes people are flexing and they're trying not to give too much of their hand in a sales conversation. Um, of course. And I and what happens is this knocks them right back because most people you know there's kind of that idea this like sales person this is like a misnomer about salespeople. Uh, this this idea of like always be closing and just like do whatever you got to do to get the sale, and it's it reeks of desperation, and it reeks of of like there's a power exchange there that happens that kind of puts you on the inferior. So it's one of two ways, right? People either go on the inferior at sales or they just become like these this overbearing pushy person and try and bully people around. And neither of those is good. What you really what you really want to do is say, hey, I'm not really my my job here isn't to isn't to like win you over at all costs. My job is to see if the problem that we solve is a problem that you're having. If that's true, we move to the next stage and we keep going. If that's not true, goodbye. I'll move on. You know, like you, we're not for everybody, and that is completely fine. The problem is people start getting caught, or salespeople get caught into this idea that they need to close every sale. And what happens is people can smell that on you. They can smell it. Like I. I don't know any other way to put it. It's like a guy, it's like a, a guy with a girl who's desperate. And, the, you know, you can smell desperation on a person and you can smell when somebody really needs something and it's a really bad look. So when you start, when you approach the conversation, you know, foundationally as, hey, my job is to figure out if you have the problem that we solve. If you do, here's what the next steps are. Um, if you don't, then like, I'm, ha- I'm, you know, happy to help you in any way I can during this call, but uh, that's completely fine as well. You know, I'm okay with both outcomes is a really important thing to do. And that, and what that allows you to do is gives you the freedom when somebody is acting like they're not into it or they're a yes man or whatever, to actually call them out on that, you know, and just say, Hey, doesn't seem like you're that into this. And, and if they say I'm not, or like, this doesn't work for me, that's great. You just saved a bunch of time not following up with that person or spending 30 minutes putting it in a, uh, putting, uh, you know, a proposal that they're never going to look at into uh, into that into email or like spending time crafting that email and then following up with them a bunch. You know, like y- your job is not your job's not to win everybody over. Your job is to figure out who's right for you. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very important thing. And some of us are actually good at identifying some of the complete lulus out there. Like I remember. This one time, uh, this is going back uh, about ten about ten years ago when I was uh, transitioning between the web development firm and the website conversion consulting company, and we had a prospect that was sent to us who sent us their draft copy that they had created for this website that they wanted to develop, and as soon as they handed it to me. They said, and and be aware, I'm not asking you for your input on this. In fact, you're not to change a single word of anything here. So, you know, I go into my consultant mode, and I ask the usual questions such as, all right, so this is so interesting. It sounds like you've really done your homework on this, and you have a very high level of confidence in what you've created. So can you just give me, like, a a general overview of the process you went through? Like, did you do market research? Did you conduct surveys? Have you studied competition? Have you looked at online reviews? What has brought you to the point where you believe that you've arrived 
at the perfect coffee. And she said, well, I asked five of my friends, and they all think it's a great idea. Now, we all know that joke, right? But she was serious. She actually asked five of her friends, and they all thought it was a great idea. But she said, oh, no, you don't understand. My friends, you don't know my friends. They, are, they have a level of transcendental enlightenment that has been foretold by the pharaohs of Narnia or something like that. Saying, oh, brother. <laughs> then the person added, and as far as my copy, which you need to understand about the copy I wrote, is that the divine spirit sent a lightning beam through my hand and guided the words as I wrote them on the page. So it's not for you to question the inspiration of the spirit. I said, okay. I'll send you yeah. no, I, I didn't even say that. I, I said, uh, I said, thanks. <laughs> now, my point is, some of these are obvious. And I told that story because we found that when I tell this story every so often on the show, that people love when I tell that story. But sometimes it's not as obvious. And maybe you have a prospect where everything about that prospect meets your bullet point checklist. So on paper, they look right. Or maybe your offerings. On paper, you check off all the boxes. But for some reason, for some reason, it's just not there. So in terms of getting people more interested or maybe finding out if there is an interest, is there anything we can do to determine whether it's just a matter that maybe there's just no chemistry or maybe it's just not feeling like a match or maybe there's something that needs to be added to the conversation to help us arrive at a point where we can work together? Yeah, you want to watch out for extremes here. When somebody's just like, yeah, this is great, this is amazing, everything's great, and then uh, and they don't really ask you any questions, they're not either they're not a decision maker because it's not their money that they're putting up uh, or their budget that they're putting up, uh, or they're just being polite and they and like they're willing to listen to anybody and kind of want to be like, like one of these relationship people. Those people don't buy. And then right. if everything you say you're an idiot, then that does then that's not really the right person for you either because they're going to be they're just going to be constantly arguing if they you know if they're impenetrable to having their opinion changed or or you know being educated or like being open to counsel if even if you close that person they're going to be a huge pain in the ass so what i'm really looking for is someone who is uh who is skeptical but interested right because that's the person who's really trying to think critically about what I'm about what I'm doing. So if nobody asks me any questions throughout the entire presentation or the entire sales pitch, and they should because a lot of what I'm going to be doing is focusing on asking them questions. But if they're if it's all one word answers and I can't get them to open up about anything, like I'll, that's when you just call it out and say, hey, you know, seems like I don't know. It seems like the engagement level is not that high here. Is there is there something that is uh, is there something that's that's off? You know, is this not hitting for you? Do you not have any of the, any of these problems? Like your main job as a in a sales pitch is, a, is especially an introductory sales pitch, is to is to uncover the problems that that the uh, person has, and then see if those problems ma match up with the with the solution you have. So like if they if it's a fight, the person pretends they don't have any problems, or they bitch about a bunch of problems that you can't <laughs> solve, or they. Uh, 
or they're telling you that, you know, how great you are the entire time and there's not really any pushback, those are really bad. Those are big red flags. Uh, so wow. that's, a, that's a good thing to keep track of. Yeah, this, I mean, this is kind of thought-provoking for me. Uh, I mean, just in terms of what we're sharing with our audience here, and sometimes it's the lack of signals that is, in fact, the signal. So if somebody's not asking any questions. What I've also discovered over the years is if uh, people praise me too much, I actually find that concerning because that's typically an indicator they're looking for a hero to rescue them. And the moment they find out you're, they're human, they will go off on you, which will cause a lot of problems in a working relationship. So it's best to suss that out early on. Yeah, well, they're full of it, one of the two. There's that, too. But, yeah. So it's, it's a very – I don't trust anybody who likes me too much. <laughs> you know, I'm asking, I'm, asking them to, I'm asking them to invest a significant amount of money they better well be doing their due diligence. Um, right. And I better have won them and I better have won them over. And like the way that I design pitch, the pitches, the pitch with people I work with is it's an interactive pitch. Your job, you know, as I said, it's just kind of like, it's this mute, it's this mutual fact finding mission to figure out, uh, I keep coming back to this, but to figure out if the needs that they have match up with, with what your, the value that you're proposing. If you can't get them to open up about that, it's a problem. One of the other things that happens a lot here is people, salespeople and CEOs, especially who are not trained salespeople, are terrified of silence, um, and they will fill they will fill that silence rather than and like be uncomfortable and like if somebody gives an answer that they don't quite understand or if you know they need clarification on, they won't ask for the clarification they'll just move on to the next thing in the demo or the next thing or whatever it is. And that's when you lose people. So like your, your job as a salesperson is to ask the dumb question if you don't get it. Right. Like if if there's something, if you ask the question and someone explains it, you don't really quite get it. Don't move on because you don't want to look stupid. Like really, really dig in and, and, and make sure that you're, you're understanding what that person is saying. Constantly be checking in with them. Say, okay, so let me paraphrase what you just said. Is that correct? Great. Uh, okay, so you mentioned that you have these three needs. Could you, you know, is that correct? Could you rank them for me? Which ones are higher? If you, if you do that effectively, people will buy from you. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're on to something very important there. So in the time we have left here, and this time is really flying, I think we have about eight minutes, what I'd like to do is just, and by there's one question I wanted to ask, and then I wanted to define our terms here. You told me a little story, and I wanted to share this with the, the class if we can. You said your therapist gave you the best business advice you ever received. So what was that? Yeah, he did. Uh, so when I was I was up for a big promotion at ZocDoc, um, and the way that it the way that it worked at ZocDoc was uh, we were on we were on monthly quotas, which is insane, but. Uh, at the time, that was how that was how it worked. So you know, it was a huge turnover. And if you missed your quota one month, it really didn't matter what you did the month before. You were put on performance review. Uh, so I had locked up this promotion from the local sales team, which is selling to individual doctors, to the uh, enterprise sales team, which is selling to hospitals. So it's a huge change, right? 
and I was the first person to to make that transition, you know, was going to be the first person to ever make that transition in the company. Um, and I was killing, you know, I was absolutely killing it on the team. And I, and I was told, okay, the promotion is coming in January. So I said, great. And what I did is I just, I took my territory and I burned through it. I, you know, I think I did like 150% of my quota, like four months in a row, but, my promotion got delayed a month because of some administrative stuff they had to deal with. So I had completely burned out my territory and I didn't have anything left to close. And, um, you know, I, I needed to get, in order to avoid performance review, you have to have five, you have to have five sales per month at the time. And I had, and we were 20 days in and I had two because I had burned through everything and it wasn't really my fault. Right. I was I I I did that strategically. There was nothing else to close there. I just closed too much too quick, um, and I was super angry about it <laughs> uh, because I'm because I knew that it didn't really matter. It didn't not you know the the explanation didn't matter. If I went on performance review, there's no way the company was going to put me the company was going to put me up uh, for that promotion that I knew was going to be pivotal to my to my career. So I was super ornery, angry, uh, and I'm just like coming into work. I'm dialing, you know, I'm I'm doing anything I can, and I'm just pissed off the whole time. So I went to my therapist and I'm talking to him about this situation, and he and he just kind of he looks at me and he says, "Okay, you're right." He's like, "You you have done everything right, and you could still get screwed, um, and it could not work out for you." He said, "You got two choices." You can continue to be angry about that fact, or you can accept that you might have done everything right, and there's still a chance, there, and you you still could fail, and it still could not be done your way, and you just try the best you can, and and accept that that's out of your control. And it was a really powerful thing because from that moment everything dropped because I let myself off the hook. I said, you know what, I'm doing everything I can, I'm doing everything I can here. Some of this is outside of my control. I just have to I just have to give it my best shot and if it doesn't work out, I guess I'll have to live with that because not everything is in my control. Especially as a salesperson and as an entrepreneur. I think we a lot of us struggle from thinking that we control the whole world. And we don't. And what happened, although this isn't the moral you know, the moral of the story isn't that I, w- I actually went in and I was more relaxed and I was a better performing salesperson and I actually did get above that and got the promotion that I needed. Even if I hadn't, the moral, that's not the moral. Even if I uh, had not done that, the moral of the story is not that I got the promotion. The moral of the story is that the best chance you, to give yourself the best chance that you can, you can to succeed, you need to accept that failure might happen because it, because otherwise you'll be far too tight and you have to let yourself off the hook for that. And uh, that's how you put your best foot forward. And that's how you also keep yourself healthy. So in a, from an entrepreneurship point of view, there's so much out of our control, right? There's so many things that we're constantly trying to, there's so many things that we're constantly trying to get a handle on that we don't, that are variables that we don't really know about. And all we can really do is think as strategically as we can, make our decisions based on the best information we have and put in, put in a, the amount, as much effort as we can. And if we can accept that that's not enough sometimes, um, and that there's a chance we can fail, I, it, you, you're freed up to do your best work possible. So that was a really important lesson for me, both as a salesperson at the time, 
And I, you know, I continue to come back to that if I'm ever having a difficult, difficult times in my business. And I just say, okay, am I doing everything I can? Is there anything that, is there anything that I should be doing that I'm not, that I'm not doing and, you know, is within a reason, is reasonable? If the answer to that is no, then I let myself off the hook. Uh, and, and I find that that's helped, that's served me really well. And I also find that the universe kind of, you know, maybe this is a little bit woo woo, but I kind of feel like the universe helps you out in that yeah. thing. It's like the, uh, the unif- the, it's like the, uh, that book, uh, The Alchemist. The universe will conspire to help you once you've made the decision to, to go for it. Oh, great. Absolutely. So we're actually at the top of the hour here, and I wanted to turn the floor over to you once more for just a moment. Uh, for those of our listeners who are interested in discovering more about how to, how to pitch and how to persuade prospects to make investments, where, where would they go from here? And uh, I think you said also you have something for us. So go ahead and share that yeah. now. Yeah, sure. So you can go to uh, my website, thecleansell.com. So that's uh, C-L-E-A-N. Uh, I'm sorry, T-H-E-C-L-E-A-N. And then sell, not like a prison cell, S-E-L-L. Like right. sell me this pen. Thecleansell.com. Uh, so – uh, you can go there, and there's actually a, a seven-step uh, pitch structure that I put up on the website that I don't. I usually don't give out for free. It's what I actually use for to map out discovery calls with my clients, and you can. And it's kind of a fill-in where you can actually go in and do that. So if you go, if you go uh, to my site, there's a. I think there's a bar on the top uh, that I have open just uh, just for the next couple of days for uh, the listeners that. Um, that heard on this podcast. So go in there, download, download that seven pitch structure. You can email me at dom, D-O-M, at thecleancell.com or reach out to me on my site. If there's anything that you want to talk about or you think there's a way that we might be able to help. Awesome. All right. So that's www.thecleancell.com. Uh, it's the Dominic yep. Campus, the Dominic Capacilli. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and, believe me, an education. Thank you very much, Adam. It's great, great talking to you as well. You bet. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.